Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians 3. We'll be there shortly. For those of you who are new with us this morning, or perhaps it's been a while since you've been with us, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Philippians. Philippians is a gloriously strange book. Paul is in prison, and yet he is encouraging us to have joy and be content, which seems like a hard thing to do when you're in prison, and yet that's the theme throughout the book. And so I hope you've been encouraged so far, whatever trials you may be going through, I think Paul's word of joy and encouragement to be joyful is one that we desperately need. I know it's one I need. And so I pray this morning that we would be reminded of the joy of following Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll get to Philippians 3 here. Uh, Father, we thank you for the great opportunity to open your word this morning. And indeed, it is our prayer as we study this gloriously strange book where Paul is in prison and yet he commands us to be joyful. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with joy today, that we would be reminded of the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and that we would leave here joyful. Oh God, I pray whatever state we came in here this morning, whatever baggage we may be dealing with, whatever hardships we may be going through, we pray that your word this morning would encourage us and remind us of the great joy that we have in Jesus. Oh, I pray that we would leave here more joyful than we came in, and that we would leave here more joyful because we're reminded of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, please help us to do this this morning in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in the fall of 1999, I attended my first ever Christian conference known as the main event. It was a collegiate ministry conference that took place on the campus of my university, the University of Northern Iowa. At the time, I was a brand new believer, probably about a month or two old in the Lord. And so the Christian conference experience was definitely a new one for me. Gathering with a thousand plus people who are excited to learn more about Jesus was not something I was accustomed to. In the years that followed, I would attend main event five more times, three as a student, two on staff with campus ministry. I've also gone on to attend many other conferences as a pastor, youth pastor, just someone who wanted to follow Jesus. But that first conference was unique because I'd never experienced anything like it before. So many people from different backgrounds and different places around the country coming together to learn more about Jesus and doing so because they wanted to be there. That was new for me. I don't think I'll ever forget that first conference. I felt like I was part of something bigger than me. But having said that, while that conference was in some ways incredibly memorable, I also have to admit that in the years that have followed, many of the details of that event have since escaped me. I don't remember the name of the speaker. I don't remember who was in my small group. I don't remember the the name of the worship band. I don't remember any songs that we sang. I don't remember any illustrations or stories the speaker told. There's many things I've forgotten. There's one detail that I still remember all these years later. I remember the particular passage that we studied at that main event, Philippians 3, 7 to 11. The reason why I remember that particular passage is because God used Philippians 3, 7 to 11 like a stick of dynamite in me to ignite something that I'd never felt before. As we studied Paul's words about the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ and the comparative rubbishness of everything else, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and gave me a desire to chase after Christ with a passion. It was a life-altering weekend. I don't think I'm overstating it to say that. It changed the trajectory of where I was headed. It was this passage, the one that we're about to study, that God used to do that for me. And so for that reason, I'm exceptionally excited this morning to open up this passage and study Philippians 3. I know that God can use a passage like this one to radically alter your life and change your trajectory. And I know that to be true because God did it for me. And so my prayer this morning is that God would use this passage in Philippians 3 to once again 
be a stick of dynamite that would ignite something in us that perhaps has been dormant for a long time or perhaps has never existed. Oh, I pray that he would use this passage to ignite our desire to follow Jesus. So that said, let's get to it. Let's stand here if you're physically able, just out of a way of showing our reverence for the Word of God. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. A fantastic passage here right in the middle of the book of Philippians. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1, says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now, as I said, Philippians 3, 7-11 is a passage that transformed my life, but I think it's important that we take our time this morning and we walk through the passage leading up to verses 7-11. through 11. In other words, that we put this in our proper context. But before we do that, before we walk through the passage, let me just go ahead and give you my overall thesis this morning, and it comes from verses 7 to 11. The overall thesis is simply this. Everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. If you forget everything else I say this morning, if you fall asleep in the next few minutes, not saying that will happen, it could happen though, and if it does, the one thing I want you to remember is simply this. Everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. That's the thesis. That's where we're headed. But having said that, I do think it's important that you understand, and that language is taken from verses 7 to 11, you understand the context leading up to that language. So let's start here in verses 1 and 2, because I think actually what leads up to it's important. Verses 1 and 2, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. So language here at the beginning of verse 1 would signal a transition, finally, my brothers. The word finally here doesn't necessarily mean that Paul is nearing an end to the letter. Rather, in this case, it probably means something to the effect of, as for the rest of the things that we need to talk about, let's get to it. And then Paul proceeds to tell the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. This is actually a theme that we've already seen multiple times in the first couple of chapters. Paul is going to return to it again in chapter 4. This theme of rejoicing is a huge theme throughout the book. But here in chapter 3, he uses it as a phrase to then launch into a discussion about false teachers and the danger of false teachers. As, as he says it in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. Given the language he uses here and the fact that he then refers to circumcision again in verse 3, it's almost certain that Paul's warning about a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers insisted that in order to be a Christian, you had to believe in Jesus plus you had to follow some Old Testament ceremonial laws. 
It seems that they had a particular concern for circumcision. You might think of their theology then, the theology of the Judaizers, as Jesus plus theology. In order to be saved, believe in Jesus plus do some other stuff. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow dietary restrictions. You need to follow the law. But that type of thinking, Jesus plus something, cuts at the very heart of the gospel message. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus has done. So for the Judaizers to suggest you must be circumcised in order to be saved or in order to prove your salvation, or you must follow dietary restrictions, or you must follow the law, this type of thinking was antithetical to the gospel. This is why Paul so vigorously warns about the danger of their teaching in this passage. Three times in verse 2, he tells them to look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. Some translations say beware. But three times he says, look out, look out, look out. This repeated use of look out or beware certainly signals Paul's level of concern. But the terms he uses to describe the Judaizers also indicate his level of concern as well. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, these are terms that are loaded with both seriousness and irony. In the Greco-Roman world, dogs were low-life scavengers. So if you think of a dog and you think of your pet Fido, you're thinking of the wrong way here. The dogs that we're talking about here are low-life scavengers. To be called a dog in this context was an insult. The insult was one that was commonly hurled at the Gentiles by Jewish people. But Paul here is turning the tables on that insult. He calls the Judaizers, who are obsessed with the Jewish law, he calls them the dogs. They are the low-life scavengers for suggesting that circumcision, obedience to law, are necessary to be saved. But Paul doesn't just label them as dogs, he also refers to them as evildoers. For a group of people who prided themselves on obedience, which the Judaizers did, being labeled as evildoers would have been a pretty hard label to swallow. But so would have the title mutilators of the flesh. Again, Judaizers stressed the importance of circumcision as necessary for being right with God. But in calling Judaizers mutilators of the flesh, Paul is pointing out their circumcision is merely a cutting or a mutilating of the flesh, nothing more. Because what matters is not whether you obey the law, whether you've been circumcised. What matters is do you have faith in Christ? Which is something Paul gets at with his language in verse 3. Verse 3 says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The real circumcision, Paul says, in other words, those who are truly a part of the people of God are not those who merely follow the law. In this case, been circumcised in the flesh. Rather, it's those who worship God by the Spirit. It's those who boast in Jesus Christ or put their trust in Jesus Christ. It's those who put no confidence in their own resume. Those who put no confidence in their flesh. Or say it in summary form, it's those who trust in Christ who are the people of God, not those who obey the law outwardly. The Judaizers claim that they were the people of God because they trust in Jesus plus they followed the Old Testament law. According to the Judaizers, circumcision and Obedience to law were necessary if you were going to belong to the people of God. But Paul is flipping that way of thinking on its head. Here in verses 2 and 3, he argues it's not those who put their confidence in their own actions or in their own flesh and own rule-keeping who are part of the people of God. Rather, it's those who put their confidence in Jesus. So the Judaizers may have claimed to be the people of God, but Paul's point is they are missing the point. Instead of putting their confidence wholly and solely in Jesus Christ. They were putting their confidence in their own rule-keeping and in their own flesh. 
But that is an exercise in foolishness because we cannot be rescued by our own resume or our own actions. By the way, that's what we're talking about when we talk about putting confidence in our flesh. To put one's confidence in the flesh is to put confidence in our own actions, in our own background, in our own doing. Again, Paul's pointing out here, that is an exercise in futility, which is the point that he then continues to make in verses 4 through 6. In verses 2 to 3, Paul's arguing the people of God are not those who put their confidence in themselves. Rather, it's those who put their confidence in Jesus. And in verses 4 to 6, he's saying, if anyone could be confident in the flesh, it would be me. And so he points to his own life as an example. The futility of thinking, putting our confidence in ourself, could rescue us. In fact, look at what he does here in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So in verses 4 to 6, Paul lists seven reasons why he, if anyone, should have confidence in the flesh, it would be him. Four of them came about as a result of his birth, three of them by his effort. He starts by pointing out that he was circumcised on the eighth day, in exact accordance with the Old Testament law. Some of the Judaizers likely came to faith later in life and thus were circumcised later. But Paul's saying, if you want to talk about circumcision, I was circumcised in exact accordance with what the law teaches on the eighth day. He also says he was an Israelite, not a Gentile who became a part of the Jewish family, but one who was born into the family. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of two tribes that remained loyal to the Davidic covenant. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. It might be similar to say how we say he's a man's man. Paul is saying, I'm a Hebrew's Hebrew. Not only was I born into a Hebrew family, but I was educated in the way of the Hebrew people. I speak the language. I know the way they work. I'm a Hebrew's Hebrew. So by birth and background, Paul is saying, I have every reason to boast in my flesh. But it's also his effort that would give him reason to boast, which is what he goes on to say in the last three. He says, as to law, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the sect most devoted to keeping the law. Paul's point is he was a law keeper. As to zeal, he persecuted the church. He was not lukewarm in his Jewish faith. He was devoted in every way. And to top it all off, he was blameless under the law. Paul is not suggesting here he was sinless. He's just pointing out if anyone kept the law, it was him. No one could bring a charge against him because he was that serious. So the cumulative effect of verses 4 to 6 is simply to say this. If anyone had reason to be confident in their own works, it was Paul. He was a true Israelite, a true lawkeeper, a true zealot for his religion. If anyone wanted to play the game of saying, look at my resume, look at what I've done, Paul is saying, I could play that game. No one was more serious than him. No one was more zealous in keeping the law. And yet Paul comes to the conclusion that none of this matters. It's only knowing Jesus Christ that matters. And that brings us to the crux of the passage, to our thesis for this morning, and to one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture in all of the Bible. Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11. Let me read it again. It says this, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now again, I think it's important that we understand verses 7 to 11 in the context of Philippians 3 as a whole. So let me just recap real quick again what we just talked about in verses 2 through 6. In verses 2 to 3, Paul's warning about the danger of false teachers, those who are putting their confidence in their flesh rather than in Jesus Christ. In verses 4 to 6, he argues, if anyone had reason to be confident in the flesh, it was me. Paul said, I had the resume, I had the achievements, I had the background. But then in verse 7, we find this thesis statement of the entire passage. He says, all of that though, my resume is nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he uses the language of loss and gain. Whatever gain I had, he said, is the loss for the sake of Christ. It's a math equation here. Whatever seemed profitable to him, Paul's saying, whatever seemed profitable, my, action, my actions, my backgrounds, my choices, my way of living, all of them are loss compared to knowing Jesus. Or as he goes on to say in verse 8, everything is a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Whereas he presses the equation even further at the end of verse 8, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The word that's used for rubbish here in verse 8 is an intense word. Some translations translate the word as dung, and it's not an inaccurate translation. Foul, smelly, street garbage would also capture the sense of what Paul's saying here in verse 8. So in verse 8, Paul's saying, in comparison to knowing Christ. In comparison to gaining Christ, everything else that I put my hope in is dung. It's street garbage. It's worthless. It's fit for the dogs. Again, it's an equation here, but also a comparison. All of this other stuff is loss compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus. Now, you need to understand something. Paul is not saying in verse 8 that being born into a Jewish family is rubbish or that being zealous for religion is rubbish. His point is, in comparison to knowing Christ, putting your hope in your background or your religious zeal, whether it be a Jewish background or zeal for the Jewish religion or otherwise, all of that, he's saying, is rubbish in comparison. Think of it this way. When we lived in New York, someone gave us their old Apple laptop. I think they gave it to us in 2014, and I would guess it was probably about five years old at the time. So rough estimate, it's a 2009 Apple laptop. We still have it today. Now, we don't use it that often. We have other computers that work far better, but every once in a while, we're fired up. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, it is a dinosaur of a computer. It takes forever to turn on. It will not work unless it's plugged in. It will randomly bonk. You'll be working, gone, just gone. Weird messages pop on it. The internet takes 50 times longer to use than it should. It has a CD drive, but when you put a CD in, it sounds like a trash compactor. And you think, this can't be good. So at this point, I'm just telling you, it's a piece of junk computer. However, to be fair, if someone handed that computer to someone living in the 1930s, they would think it's the greatest thing ever. So it's not that the computer is a piece of junk. It's just that in comparison to what we have now, it's junk. I think that's actually kind of the point that Paul's making here. He's making a comparison. There's nothing wrong with Paul's resume. There's nothing wrong with his background in and of itself. It's not a problem that he was Jewish or that he was circumcised on the eighth day or that he was zealous for religion. But he's saying in comparison to Christ, those things are now rubbish. In comparison to knowing Jesus, those things don't matter. In comparison to following Christ, they are junk. Knowing Christ is of surpassing value in comparison to everything else. And again, that's the overarching thesis of this passage, that everything else is rubbish 
It's garbage compared to knowing Christ. In verses 9-11, through Paul goes on to elaborate why knowing Christ is of surpassing value. In fact, let's just walk through verses 9-11. There's three things we're going to see here in terms of why knowing Jesus Christ is of surpassing value. First, knowing Christ is of surpassing worth because it means we have the righteousness of God. Verse 8, the last half of verse 8 and into verse 9 says this, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness in my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now here's the thing. Every person in this room has a serious problem. And I don't mean kind of serious, I mean deadly serious. And the problem is that our sin has separated us from a holy God. And no matter how many good things we do, we can never earn His favor. He is too holy, and we are too sinful. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the life we could not live and died the death that we should have died. In other words, He took our punishment on the cross for our sin, He bore the wrath of God for us. He died the death we should have died. But he's also willing to give us his righteousness, to give us credit for the life he lived. That is incredible. Think about it this way. Let's say that you got into some crazy gambling debt. I don't know what you're gambling on. Maybe you've been betting on the Huskers the last five years, and you're just in serious debt at this point. And instead of getting help right away, you decide, I'm going to double down on my gambling. And you keep doubling down, and you double down to the wrong guys, to the point that now two guys named Sal and Jimmy are looking for you, and they are not bringing you chocolate chip cookies. The problem is you have a debt you can never repay, millions and millions of dollars. But then Elon Musk moves next door, and somehow you become friends, and he decides he's going to give you some of his Tesla money to pay off your debt. We're talking millions of dollars here. You'd have to admit, if that was the case, and now Sal and Jimmy are off your back, that would be incredible. But what if he didn't stop there? What if he said instead, you know what, not only am I going to pay your debt, all of my wealth is yours now too. All $212 billion, it's yours. You can have it. It's deposited into your account. Well, that would be a completely different thing, wouldn't it? It's one thing to have your debt forgiven. It's another to have $212 billion put into your account. But here's the crazy thing about the gospel, is that's the story of the gospel, except infinitely more valuable. It's not just that our sins were forgiven. That would be amazing. To get back to zero, that would be incredible. But the righteousness of Christ was given to our account. Not a righteousness that comes from obeying the law, something we do, but a righteousness that is from God and depends on faith. It's the righteousness of another. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when we are found in Christ, when we are united to him in saving faith, by the way, that's the key term throughout this passage, united to him. When we're in union with Christ, not only are our sins forgiven, but his righteousness is given to us. Because Jesus lived a perfect life, we can stand before a holy God and be declared not guilty. In fact, more than just not guilty, we have the riches of Christ. So knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth because we have the righteousness of God. But knowing Jesus is also of surpassing worth because it means we get to have a personal relationship with him and become more like him. This is verse 10. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
The idea of knowing Jesus here in verse 10 is not the idea of knowing about Jesus. It's the idea of knowing him personally. And there's a difference. For the first 18 years of my life, I knew about Jesus. I was aware of the facts about him. I knew what he'd done, but I didn't know Jesus. I didn't have a personal relationship with him, and I certainly was not becoming more like him. But when we turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith, his spirit dwells in us. We walk with him daily, and we become more like him. Now, there's something really interesting that Paul says here in verse 10. In a passage that talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, it's interesting that not only does Paul talk about the value of knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection, but he also talks about sharing in Jesus' sufferings. This is kind of strange, we have to admit. The idea of knowing Jesus, we could say, oh yeah, that's of surpassing worth. The idea of knowing the power of his resurrection, again, we would say that's of surpassing worth. But the idea of sharing in his sufferings, now that doesn't even seem quite as exciting, does it? But as verse 10 would indicate, sharing in his sufferings is part of how we become more like Jesus in his death. Jesus suffered and eventually died on the cross. But as he did so, he entrusted himself to God. And as we suffer, and as we entrust ourselves to God, then we become more like him. I'm just going to tell you, this is not easy. In fact, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm tired of sickness in our family. I'm tired of taking Dawson to the children's hospital twice a month for infusions. I'm tired of my wife not being able to breathe. I'm tired of her not being able to feel her legs. And I lament the fact that we live in a broken world. I think that's biblically right and appropriate to say it just stinks sometimes. But having said that, I can earnestly say that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the suffering of this world, that God has helped us to know his power more. I'm so much more prayerful than I used to be. I'm much quicker to run to him than I was three years ago. I'm quicker to acknowledge what I don't know, and I'm more apt to long for eternity. In fact, it's not even close. And in that way, I would say this. I'm more like Jesus than I used to be. Now, those of you who know me well might say, well, that may be true, but you still have a long way to go, buddy. And listen, I'm willing to stipulate that is true. I have a long, long way to go. But I'll tell you this, I'm further along than I used to be. And suffering is a huge part of that. Knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth because it means we get to have a personal relationship with him and we get to become more like him, even in our suffering. In fact, sometimes because of our suffering. And this gives us hope in the midst of a dark world. But there's another thing that makes knowing Jesus of surpassing worth, and it also gives us hope in the midst of a dark world, and that's this. Knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth because it means future glory awaits. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As we've said before, Paul always seemed to have two days on his calendar, today and that day, the day that Jesus returns. Friends, I would just ask you this morning, is that day on your calendar? One of the best parts of knowing Jesus is we no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to dread what's coming. On the contrary, we know the best is still to come. Because we stand on the righteousness of Christ, we know that one day we will stand before the judgment seat of God with confidence. Not because of what we've done, 
Not because we've followed the law, not because we've been circumcised or not circumcised, not because we have confidence in our flesh. Rather, we will stand with confidence before the throne of God because we will point to Jesus and we will say, he's why I belong. It's because of what he did. It's his righteousness. We have hope in future glory because we know Jesus. That one day we will attain to the resurrection from the dead. That we will be with Christ forever. It's another reason why knowing Jesus is of surpassing value. And in light of what we read here in Philippians 3, I think it's appropriate, as always, we would ask the question, well, what do we do with this? And so let me just offer up two suggestions this morning by way of how we respond to this. As we think about the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and the relative rubbishness of everything else, how should we respond to suggestions? One, suggestion number one, forget your resume. Listen, I don't know that any of us are putting our hope in circumcision or our ability to keep the law. I doubt that any of us are pointing to our Jewish lineage or our tribe as a source of confidence before God. And in that way, we're not like the Judaizers. But like the Judaizers, we have a tendency to put our confidence in our own resume, in our own actions. We think to ourselves things like this, why well, go to church, or I give money to certain causes, or I'm a good person. Or I've done lots of good things, or I support my kids, or I'm a good neighbor, or I'm not as bad as the other guys. And on and on and on it goes. But hear me, your resume doesn't matter. In terms of spiritual resume, Paul's resume was as impressive as it gets. There's not a person in this room who could hold up their spiritual resumes next to Paul's and say, look, my resume is better than his. That would be like a guy who started a business less than a month ago, holding up his resume next to Jeff Bezos and saying, my resume is more impressive. Listen, it doesn't matter what your business has done in month one. It's probably not going to match up to the guy who started Amazon as one of the richest guys in the world. By the same token, I don't care if you've read your Bible 20 times in the last year or if you've given more money to charity than any person you know. Your resume is not going to match the resume of Paul's in terms of lineage and action. And yet Paul, who has this incredibly impressive resume, says, nope, it's nothing compared to knowing Jesus. My resume is worthless. It's rubbish. So listen, if you have been the type of person who for years has been keeping track of your own score at home, I'm doing more good things than bad. My resume is good. Let me just encourage you this morning, stop. Stop. You'll never be good enough. You will never be able to match up to a holy God. And instead, Look to Jesus, which is my second suggestion to you this morning in terms of response. Pursue Jesus with all that you have. Here's the thing. If we think that Paul is being led by the Spirit here in Philippians 3, and that really, it is true what Paul says, that everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Christ, then I think the simple follow-up question is simply this. How could we not pursue Jesus with all that we have? If you came into my office one day and you saw me typing away on my 2009 Apple laptop doo -doo 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 -doo, and getting frustrated over and over again as my computer shuts down or freezes up, at some point you'd probably just say, listen, you're putting your hope in the wrong computer. Just use the one that works. By the same token, if we find ourselves being frustrated over and over and over again, and if we feel like we're just missing joy in life and we're not content, at some point, we have to come to the conclusion we're pursuing the wrong things. Pursuing Christ, making Him our greatest passion, this is where joy is found. I'm not just talking about pursuing Him in a theoretical way, but in an actual one. Let me ask you this. Could you earnestly say in the last month you have pursued Christ more passionately than anything else? 
If someone were to look at your schedule or the kids' activities that you've made the center of things or your online bank account, or if they were just to observe your day-to-day living, would they come to the conclusion, oh, clearly they believe that everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Christ? Or would they come to the conclusion that you value something else more? Listen, if there are things that are more valuable than Jesus, by all means, pursue them. But if everything else really is rubbish compared to knowing Christ, then it seems to me he should be our greatest passion. If we don't know him, we should turn to him in saving faith. By the way, in a group this size, no doubt there are some here who do not know Jesus. And maybe like Paul, in the old days before you know Jesus, you were putting your hope in your resume, that you're a good person, you've done good things, you go to church, you do all this, dun 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 But let Paul's words here be a reminder, hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. Turn to Christ in saving faith. And if you know him, then let me encourage you this morning to double down on your pursuit of him. And that pursuit should be evident in the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, and in the way you look at the world. There's an old worship song that we used to sing back in the day. Maybe we sang it, maybe I don't know. The main part of the song goes like this. Lord, give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession to know and follow hard after you. In light of Philippians 3, I think that's a pretty good prayer this morning. In fact, I hope it is your prayer this morning. Lord, give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession to know and follow hard after you. As I said in the introduction, I think this passage has the possibility to be like a stick of dynamite in your life, igniting something that maybe has been dormant for a long time or maybe just never been there. If we really believe that Philippians 3, 7-11 is true, I don't know how we could remain the same. I don't know how we couldn't pursue Jesus with a passion that is unmatched. And so this morning, I think maybe the appropriate way for me to end is to try to light that stick of dynamite one more time by simply reading Philippians 3, 7 to 11. Here it is. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Oh, I pray that those words would describe our hearts. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings that we may become more like him and someday attain to the resurrection of the dead. May that be true of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this stick of dynamite right here in the middle of Philippians 3. And we pray that it would light our hearts on fire and ignite something in us this morning, that we would, like Paul say, like Paul say everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Oh, Lord, would you please do this? Would you give us one magnificent obsession, one pure and holy passion to know and follow hard after you? Would you give us that desire, Lord? God, if we've been placing our hope in our resume, I pray that we would repent of that this morning. Instead, we would turn to Jesus and we would pursue him with all that we have. Oh God, we pray that you would do this in us for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.